What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer, one of the voices behind the CNBC podcast Squawk Pod. In these times of uncertainty, we want to make sure we're bringing you, our listeners, as much information as possible as quickly as we can. That's why we're sharing with you now a CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Listen in. Good evening. I'm Scott Wapner on day 164 of the coronavirus crisis. Breaking tonight, the number of cases in the U.S. now reaching 2 million. Texas has an outbreak underway. Is Texas really ready for the first round? Pro golfers get ready to hit the course. I'm really happy we're back to playing golf. Tonight, the PGA's top health man on the path forward. Plus, an ER doctor in Houston who suddenly finds himself on the front lines of this spiking epidemic. Think of creative ideas to come together. And three entrepreneurs on what's known as Black Wall Street, battling through the pandemic and protests. And something much bigger. This CNBC special report begins right now. Here's Scott Wapner. Welcome. It is good to have you with us on this Wednesday night. We begin in Texas, where hospitalizations due to COVID-19 have hit new highs three days in a row now. The seven-day average also rising in Texas. The problem has been particularly severe in the Houston area. Dr. Jeremy Finkelstein is on the front lines there. He is the director of the emergency department at Houston's Methodist Hospital, joins us now. Doctor, welcome. It's good to talk to you tonight. Well, thank you for having me. How concerned are you this evening? Well, I think, you know, some of this was anticipated, right? I mean, Texas was one of the first states to uh, reopen its economy and kind of get things moving again, albeit with some restrictions. So I don't think it's a a shock to anybody here. Uh, On the other hand, it's a flag of caution. Um, We are certainly watching the numbers very carefully and gauging our response to that accordingly. Um, If you look at uh, the way Texas orchestrated the opening of the economy in the state was they put a, a mandate that hospitals had to reserve a certain amount of bed capacity, inpatient bed capacity for COVID-related illness uh, at, at about 15%. And so that's really a statistic that we're watching very cautiously and uh, and huddling with other area hospitals. We're not doing this in a vacuum. This is being done uh, in concert, uh, kind of in an unprecedented manner with uh, other hospitals in the uh, in the catchment area here. Was going to say Governor Abbott today saying that he's concerned but not yet alarmed. Does that match sort of your feeling tonight? Yes, I think I think that's a pretty accurate statement. Um, you know, we've only got a couple of days of, of uh, trend, and so we're watching that very cautiously. As I mentioned, um, we never really fully disbanded our incident command, and if you've looked at some of the, the news media recently. States like Arizona and others mandating the uh, reinstatement or the opening of incident commands to coordinate these efforts. Uh, Here at Houston Methodist, we never dismantled that apparatus. So uh, I'll give you an example. In the peak of the pandemic, we were doing calls, you know, three times a day with incident command with all our executives and all the relevant hospital leadership. 
um, and relevant departments, uh, we're now down to three days a week. So Monday, Wednesday, Friday, we do a call. Um, but we've never really disbanded that with the thought that if we did have a second wave or a flare up, we'd be ready to go and ready to kind of jump right back into action. So that whole process is still unfolding and still active. Here how, in Texas. how close to capacity is your hospital? Uh, and I assume you're mentioning about the the 15 percent covid capacity issue. Um, so we, we have plenty of bed capacity. And in fact, during the during the height of the pandemic at the peak, which was kind of uh, late April, early May, uh, we really never bumped up against a capacity issue, especially in the critical care areas. And I think that's the most important. Right. The sickest of the sick patients. Those are the folks that consume the most resources. Those are the folks that put the strain and stress on the healthcare system. Uh, and push it to the edge. And, and we re- really never even bumped up against that. We had adequate PPE throughout the entire process, unlike many areas in the country that were very hard hit. Um, so I guess we were lucky to an extent uh, that we didn't reach those numbers. Uh, currently, you know, we're, we're approaching this as a system, right? And we have uh, seven acute care hospitals, eight freestanding emergency departments in our system. So there's plenty of bed capacity, whereas one hospital may bump up against a wall with closer, uh, you know, 85, 90 percent capacity. But we have plenty of capacity system wide. Um, There is an important point I do want to make, which is, you know, we have to learn how to function now in a system that's bifurcated. And what do I mean by that? Uh, During the pandemic, we had two to three months where patients literally avoided the ER for serious medical problems. And so morbidity and mortality rose significantly, and that's well documented throughout the country. Now, people avoided ERs for strokes, heart attacks, cancer-related illness, sepsis, you know, severe life-threatening situations. Uh, EMS providers will tell you that they made more calls for, uh, unfortunately, dead bodies at home, for lack of a better term. Uh, cardiac arrests that occurred because people refused to come to the hospital for fear of catching COVID. So hospitals have to learn to function now in this environment. How are we going to provide those services for both sets of patients, the COVID-related patients as well as the non-COVID-related patients? We can't go back to closing down entire service lines and surgical procedural areas uh, and mass again because those patients are left behind and the unfortunate outcome is not good. Good points that you make. We'll be following that story uh, for certain. Doctor, we appreciate your time tonight. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's Dr. Jeremy Finkelstein, and he is down in Houston for us tonight. Meantime, the PGA Tour officially kicking off its first live event tomorrow at the Charles Schwab Challenge Tournament in Texas, in Fort Worth. It could mark the start of a new normal for live sports. Andy Levinson is the senior vice president of tournament administration at the PGA Tour in charge of health and safety at the tournament. Brandel Chambly is an analyst for the Golf Channel. Gentlemen, it's great to have you both with us. Uh, Andy, I want to begin with you first. The kinds of precautions you are taking this week are, are what? What can we expect? Well, we've spent the better part of the last three months working with medical advisors to develop a comprehensive health and safety plan that uh, is really based on the fact that we are uh, fortunate to operate outdoors across a piece of property that is hundreds of acres. And we feel very confident that we can operate a tournament in a socially distant manner at all times. On top of that, We're going to be doing screening at every point of entry, thermal screening and questionnaires. And then for players and caddies and those people who work closely with them, we are doing testing at this point across the PGA Tour event in Fort Worth this week, as well as a Corn Ferry Tour event in uh, Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, We've done more than 1,500 tests to date. 
And so uh, our, our procedures are in place and they're working quite well at this point. Brandel, the, the sense you're getting from the players that you've spoken with or, or have heard from uh, is what? Well, generally, athletes compete for themselves or for a team, and if they're uh, really good on a rare occasion for their country. But I get the sense that uh, many of the players in the Charles Schwab Challenge will get the feeling that they're competing for a cause uh, in support of the frontline workers, with obviously the pandemic, uh, to the memory of George Floyd, uh, to the peaceful protest uh, at the horrific injustice of his murder. And then uh, finally, I think, just uh, offering a catharsis to the world Uh, from the almost unprecedented uncertainty and unrest of the last three months. Andy, I'm I'm wondering how you handle such things as support staff coming and going daily, especially in a state where we just finished talking about to begin our program tonight that is seeing spikes in certain places. Well, as we looked at developing uh, this plan for our return to competition, the number of people that we had on site was an area that we focused a great deal on. Normally at a PGA Tour event uh, without spectators, uh, which this event is being conducted without spectators, but without spectators, you'd have about 2,000 people on site. Uh, That number has been cut down in half. And then we've also taken measures to keep groups separated as well. So, uh, again, we're fortunate to have a large piece of property so that all those people can spread out and work in a proper distance. Randall, what's it going to be like for the players? And in such a different environment, it's going to feel like a practice round, perhaps, on their, their home courses without any spectators around while still competing for a pretty hefty purse. Yeah, well, I mean, many of the players are not that far removed from college, even some of them not that far removed from high school where they would have competed with almost no fans out there. So likely won't feel that different. But get a sense of what it would be like for a comedian to stand up and perform in front of no live audience. And I think you get the sense of what it would like, what it would be like, perhaps, to compete, hit great shots, and then not have sort of the this this alchemy, right? This, this trade between the audience and the players, this, where they transform one another, this adrenaline augmented performance that we get. Think about the Ryder Cup just a few years ago when Rory and Patrick Reed were going at it and it just came to this fevered pitch that, well, it's the type of entertainment that we pay for. Um, so, you know, it will be a new norm, but let's hope that it's a uh, short-lived new norm. Looking forward to seeing some action. That, that's for certain. Andy, lastly, what happens if you have a positive case? What will you do? Well, we do have procedures in place to respond to a positive test. Uh, we, of course, we'll work closely with the local county health authorities uh, in response to that. We do have a procedure in place to have a physician on site that would evaluate someone, and uh, that person would be directed into a quarantine area for potentially a period of 10 to 14 days. And we're prepared to support that person uh, for as long as they need to be supported, uh, whether that's with food or supplies or medical care. Going to be interesting for the broadcasters as well. Uh, Andy Levinson, great to see you. Brandel, good to see you as well. Obviously, always catch you on, on the Golf Channel. It's good to have you. And the PGA Tour does kick off tomorrow, as we said, at noon with NBC's Golf Channel broadcasting. The first two days, and we're looking very much forward to that. Let's bring in now the CNBC contributor, Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He's the former commissioner of the FDA. 
Dr. Gottlieb, uh, interesting challenges come uh, with professional sports. Yes, we're not going to have any spectators, but you still do have to worry about the players and you have to worry about the support staffs coming and going. Yeah, they're testing the players in, so they're creating a bubble around the players. You do need to worry about the crowds that you're pulling together, the support staff that you're bringing in. Um, there are outbreaks underway in that region right now, so you have to be concerned about that. Remember, Texas never really had an epidemic. They um, passed through the first wave of this, um, not untouched, but they were able to um, get through without a major epidemic. So they were able to stockpile medical resources, personal protective equipment. So they do have residual capacity right now to deal with this, but they have a major outbreak underway, and so does Arizona. And we talk about a seasonal effect here. Arizona and Texas probably have tipped over on the seasonal effect. It's in the high 90s in Houston right now. It's about 110 degrees in Phoenix. And so they're at a point in their season where people are being driven inside for air conditioning. And so they're probably not getting the benefits of the seasonal effect and people being outside more in those regions. You call this a second wave or is it too early to characterize it as such? I think it's a continuation of their first wave. If you look at their curves, they never really um, recovered. They never really drove down their rate of infection. It came down, um, but not dramatically, and now it's going back up again. And so they've had a slow burn, and they've had persistent infection in both of those parts of the country. And as they reopened and people started to interact more, cases went up. I think the challenge for both of those states and other parts of the country, South Carolina's in this bucket as well, is that they really haven't been able to isolate yet the source of the infection. They don't know where these outbreaks are occurring. And it could just be that's pervasive spread and it's a little bit everywhere. Or, or there could be some, some isolated sources of the infection, certain places of work, certain activities. And they might be able to take selective action to try to quell these outbreaks. But right now they don't have that information. And that's probably what's most concerning right now. They need to do that public health work to figure out where the infection is coming from. Well, we're going to make you America's doctor tonight then, uh, Dr. Gottlieb. I mean, what, what would you tell residents... Uh, in these states, if not the nation, about what they need to do tonight and here forward to try and mitigate the risk? Well, look, the fact that they didn't have a major um, epidemic in the first wave or in the first instance probably bred a little bit of complacency there. I mean, I don't want to speak for the, the residents of Texas and Arizona, but you can, you can surmise that there probably is a sense that, you know, they've, they've uh, gotten through the worst of this. And so they might not be taking the same precautions that people in very hard-hit cities are taking. So, you know, universal masking, all the things we talk about with hygiene, trying to limit your social circle, trying to limit the number of times you go to the store each week, all of those things help when uh, practiced on a population basis, especially the masks. There's incremental studies coming out. There was one out today that if you wear high-quality masks across a population, you can dramatically cut the rate of spread in that population. Now, granted, if it's 96 degrees in Houston, it's probably getting difficult to wear a mask out and about all day long, but it does help if you can reach for universal masking. If we're not going to implement the population-wide mitigation, we're not going to shut down things again, you have to look for these more um, easier-to-administer interventions like universal masking, or else you're just going to have cases continue to grow. Well, to that point, you've got now 21 states that are seeing a rise in, in cases, states that actually have persistent spread. You mentioned some of them, North Carolina among them, Florida, uh, and Arkansas, are we going to only see that number rise and spread further across the country? Well, it depends on what these states do. I mean, if the states take targeted actions to try to contain the spread, in some of these states, it's outbreaks around certain facilities, and so they've been able to isolate it. In other states, they haven't, like South Carolina. North Carolina really doesn't know where their spread's coming from, Arizona, Texas. And so in the states that aren't able to isolate it, you might see uh, the cases continue to grow. 
I think what we're more likely to see over the course of this summer um, is just, you know, persistent infection around the country and sort of a rotating cast of characters when it comes to where the outbreaks are, what cities, what states. But you're going to persistently have about 20,000 infections and it's going to continue to grow, maybe go up a little bit as we get into August. And again, that sets up a lot of risk for the fall um, that you could see cases start to grow really dramatically. And this wouldn't be unlike 2009 with H1N1. It's tracking pretty close to that season in terms of the tenors of this epidemic and how it's burning through the summer, setting up some risk for the fall. Back uh, with you in just a second as we talk about how we're going to deal with all of this. And on that front, there was big news today on the race to develop a coronavirus vaccine. Johnson & Johnson moving up its human trials now to July. Our Meg Terrell following that story for us tonight. Hi, Meg. Hey, Scott. Well, these timelines were already pretty quick and they're getting even faster. J&J moving up the time when it plans to start human trials of a potential COVID-19 vaccine by at least a month. They now say they plan to start the human trials in late July. They had said September. They're going to enroll more than a thousand healthy adults between the ages of 18 and 55, as well as older adults uh, over 65. They're going to run these trials both in the United States and in Belgium. Uh, Now, we talked with J and J's chief scientific officer, Dr. Paul Stoffels, today about these compressed timelines and the concerns uh, that trials run this quickly and perhaps in smaller numbers than are usually run before you get approval uh, about the concerns about safety that come from that. And he said they are going to test these in at least 30,000 to 100,000 people before they would be seeking regulatory approval. Take a listen to what he said. We will not take uh, undue risk here. We want to have a safe and effective vaccine, and we will do whatever is needed. We'll also test the vaccine in, in elderly people as well as in younger. So we'll have all, uh, all parts of society participate in phase one and into the efficacy studies to make sure we learn as much as we can before we bring the vaccine to people. And we said if all goes well, they could start that phase three uh, in September. Meanwhile, um, there is work underway on drugs as well. And we got some news from Lilly today that, you know, we knew that they started their human trials of their antibody drug for COVID-19 last week. They now say if all goes well, they could even get regulatory emergency use authorization as soon as September. So they're the first to have a drug designed for COVID-19 in human studies. They have two different antibody programs. And we know that Regeneron is expected to start human trials very soon of their program as well. This could be what some refer to as a bridge to a vaccine if it's available sooner. And of course, if it works. Scott? Meg, appreciate it. Big interview today and certainly move that stock uh, as we figure out what's going to happen with a vaccine. Uh, for COVID-19. That's Meg Terrell tonight. Dr. Gottlieb, I'll come back to you. Uh, Let's sort of look at a scorecard here, if if we could. The significance of the J&J news today, first off, is what? Well, highly significant, and also the significance of the fact that NIH is going forward with three trials of the vaccines, and they're going to get underway this summer. I think we can feel reasonably confident we're going to get a vaccine to COVID-19. It's probably a 2021, early 2021 event that we're going to have a vaccine available for mass inoculation of the entire population. But it, but it might be the case that we have it available in the fall or the winter under an emergency use authorization for selected high-risk populations. That is a possibility because we will at that point have a lot of clinical data available on these vaccines, certainly immunogenicity data, data demonstrating that they're generating a robust immune response, if in fact they do, and probably enough patients exposed to the vaccine for enough uh, time, for a long enough period of time, 
um, to know a lot about the safety of these vaccines. And so we might be in a position to start using it this year under an emergency use authorization, even though it might be fully licensed and available for mass inoculation in early 2021, which I think has to be our base case. There was other data out from Novavax as well showing that that vaccine generated a very robust immune response in, in monkeys, but that's also in phase one studies. And so there's, a num- there's about seven vaccines right now that are pretty far along and pretty much on the same timetable. I mean, one might be ahead of another one by a month, but they're all pretty much on the same timetable. And we've got the largest companies in the world in this race. And so we're going to get a vaccine. I was going to go down the list. Uh, You're on the board of Pfizer. Of course, they're in the game. Moderna, as we've reported on so extensively. You just mentioned Novavax. There's AstraZeneca and, of course, J&J. Meg uh, addressed an an interesting issue, and that is the risk involved in in all of this. And I'm trying to imagine, Dr. Gottlieb, in in your former role as well as the former FDA commissioner, the immense pressure that is going to be on regulators Uh, through this process to approve a vaccine for its use. Let's not forget we are in election season and not too far from now. And I'm wondering how all of this is going to play into the pressure on regulators. Well, look, if I was there, I would start talking about this right now, talking about the conditions under which you might make a vaccine available for an emergency use authorization, because my worry is that that might be the right decision to make in November or October Um, But anything heading into an election season is going to be looked at through a political lens, unfortunately. And so even though it might be the right decision for the public health, might be the right public health decision and the right scientific decision, I think there's going to be people who want to look at it through a political context. And so the best thing you can do is make sure you're talking about the circumstances and the criteria upon which you would make that decision to make it available sooner. And there might be a case in which you would. If we have a large epidemic this fall, And we have a vaccine that we've already put in 30,000 patients. We have a pretty good safety database. We have three-month follow-up data on it, a four-month follow-up data, which is possible. Um, And it shows good immunogenicity, good effect. And we have a a trend towards a clinical benefit. That might be a vaccine you'd make available to certain people or make it available in a large, simple safety trial where you effectively make it available on a large basis, but you still continue to collect information and study it. So you do it in a context of a protocol, of a large clinical trial. You raised some some really good and interesting points there. Let's get to a couple of tweets, uh, if we could tonight. The first one is, and and we're talking about the toolbox, so let's continue that conversation. To what extent have new COVID treatment protocols improved the prognosis of those who do get sick? Enough that we should expect hospitalizations to stay flat or even in some states increase, but with fewer fatalities overall? I think it's the latter, and absolutely they have. We've gotten a lot better at treating patients with COVID. We should see the death rate coming down. Hospitalizations probably won't change, but we'll we'll preserve more life. And on the issue of of reopening and the cases that we're seeing in some states around the country increase, if we don't see a spike in cases following the protests, which I hope we don't, shouldn't we move towards immediate reopening and admit shutting down was a mistake? Well, look, we have to remember the context in which we shut down uh, parts of the economy. It was when we were, thought we were going to overrun the healthcare system. And New York basically was brought to the brink. So was New Orleans, Detroit, Chicago. Um, so we had a major epidemic underway. And frankly, the, the decisions to shut down the economy were policy responses in, in, in a response to what businesses and people were doing. They were shutting down. Just like the decision to reopen the economy was driven by the people. I don't think the population would have tolerated much more of a shutdown. In fact, we opened up the country before the criteria were met, the criteria that the public health officials had laid out. And so, you know, these things have been driven by business and the people as much as they've been driven by the public health officials. Appreciate your time. As always, Dr. Gottlieb, thank you. We'll talk to you again tomorrow night.
Thanks a lot. That's Dr. Scott Gottlieb once again joining us tonight. Here's what's coming up next on this CNBC special report. Tonight, three entrepreneurs on what's known as Black Wall Street. I literally can't even imagine what happens next. Their story is just part of what you'll see tonight. The rest is an important part of American history many have never heard of. Plus, are you ready to return to Las Vegas? One couple just did. They'll let us know if it's worth the gamble. And a Harlem celebrity chef. First it was the pandemic, now the protests. His story, next. First, images from across the United States on Wednesday, June 10th. Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Welcome back on a day when the Nasdaq closed above 10,000 for the very first time. Let's get a look this evening at how futures are doing, how the day tomorrow could shape up. Right now, we would open lower all three of the major averages in the red at this hour. Today, the Dow dropped for the second straight day, falling 282 points. Financials were a drag after the Federal Reserve says it doesn't see raising interest rates through 2022. The S&P 500 was off half a percent. And as I mentioned, the Nasdaq positive with a fractional gain ending above 10,000 for the first time ever. Gains in Apple, a new all-time high there. Amazon Alphabet leading the way today. On day 164 of the crisis, here are some more headlines on the virus tonight. All Rhode Island school districts will reopen for in-person classes starting on August 31st. Starbucks says it expects to lose more than $3 billion this quarter because of the pandemic. Disney is proposing a phased reopen of its Disneyland Resort in Anaheim starting on July 9th with the Disneyland theme park opening July 17. And AMC plans to open almost all of its movie theaters in the U.S. and Britain next month. As states reopen, the future remains quite uncertain for restaurants in this country. Will customers come back and will it be enough for restaurants to stay in business? The acclaimed chef and co-owner behind Red Rooster Harlem, Marcus Samuelson, joins us once again tonight. Marcus, it's good to see you again. Thanks for being here. Good to see you, my friend. How are you? I'm well, thank you. I hope you are, too. And I hope things are different from the last time we spoke when it was right at the beginning of the pandemic. Things were so tough. Have they gotten any better for you? Well, I mean, it's uh, we just been serving coming up on serving 100,000 meals here in our restaurant with our partnership with uh, World Central Kitchen. So I take enormous amount of pride in that. You know, I want to thank my team and everybody here in the community that stepped up. But, uh, you know, it's it's very, very tough. The pandemic has been the toughest thing that ever happened to our industry. And um, it's projected that 50 percent of the restaurant um, 
in urban communities are not even going to come back because, as you know, urban America, we have uh, we just have a tougher scenario in terms of, uh, you know, the pandemic stays longer here than it does in Western America for many different reasons. How are you thinking about the, the reopening process as now we sort of inch towards that day when you'll be allowed to start serving customers again? Yeah, so we do this in phases as well. So actually this week we started to open our takeout, which is a big step for us just to, you know, we've been so focused on the pandemic and serving the community. Uh, now starting uh, takeout this week here in, in Harlem. Next week I'm starting takeout in my restaurant in Miami as well. So that's one, you know, one major step for us. And then hopefully uh, we can start open back up for normal customers by the, you know, once, once the governor and, and, and the city tells us we're ready to do that. But we can't wait to, to invite customers back and learn about this new normal, right? Serving with masks, gloves, you know, so creating a safe environment. You know, we have a lot of space at Red Roosters. So we a lot of, we're fortunate, so we will definitely space it out. But uh, operating a restaurant with 40% revenue is very, very tough in an industry that uh, on a good restaurant probably maybe has seven to eight percent profit. So th- imagine that 93 percent of all the revenue that comes in, you already uh, goes back into the business. You know, I, I happen to be looking around today on the Internet and I, I came across by happenstance, frankly, uh, an op ed that you wrote in Eater uh, this mm-hmm. week. As a matter of fact, it may have even been yesterday. The headline being the best thing I can do for Harlem right now is feed people. And I want to talk to you about a couple of different things here. But first, I'd like to hit into what the restaurant is going to be like when you when you get back to business. And you touched on it a bit, but I do want to quote from what you wrote and get your reaction to it. You said three months into the pandemic, people are tired and scared of working and of not working. We've got gloves and masks on, but the fear is there. My cooks have families to go home to. But everybody knows that we have to stand together or we're all going to fall apart. Tell me about those words. Well, I mean, we've never been through this as a, as a community, right? There was no guidelines for this. You know, if it comes back, we know at least how to deal with it, right? So that's why, you know, hats off to the teams here that, you know, restaurant workers, all 12 million of us in, the, in this country, uh, we are first responders. We were the ones that responded to this and served in our community. Uh, we figured it out as we, we went along. Mask, gloves social distancing, how are we going to do that? There was no guidelines. We had to figure that out. And, and I really, the new normal for us is to keep that and create a safe environment. But most restaurants, uh, this is a slim margin industry. And to do it in 40, 50% of, of revenue base, it's going to be very, very tough. You know, Red Rooster is a very layered experience. There's music, there's two bars, there's, you know, 180 staff. I can't bring everybody back. You know, if I can bring 30, 40, 50 percent back and then, you know, that's probably the new normal for me. But it's it's, it's very, very tough. It's a very, very tough um, thing for us. I also want to talk about the, the bigger issue that we've all been thinking about more acutely, uh, certainly in the last couple of weeks following the, the murder of, of George Floyd. You spoke yeah. at the peaceful protest uh, yes. in Harlem. You've been thinking about the issue of inequality for years. You've literally quite literally been serving the underserved for many yes. years. Tell me what this issue means to you. Well, it means, thank you for that question. It means everything. You know, I'm a 
black immigrant coming to this country because of diversity. America is such a beacon of hope to the rest of the world, but we have a blind spot when it comes to race. This is 400 years in making between, you know, African-Americans couldn't get bank loans. We couldn't get jobs. There's been bias against us forever. So, you know, um, we are going through the toughest time as a country right now, but also one of the most important time. This conversation that we're having right now as a nation is well overdue. And the police brutality that's been happening in communities such as mine here in Harlem or in Overtown in Miami or in Newark or in Detroit, the only difference now is that people, you know, can now with smartphones, you know, it's all on social media. So the truth is out. So I am so proud of my community in terms of the marches and the, that we've had here. They're all being peaceful and they've been led by community leaders. You know, hundreds and thousands of people are coming together and not only in America, right? This is happening everywhere. Israel, Palestine, Copenhagen, Stockholm, they're all hearing that American, African-American culture is changing in America. And this speaks to marginalized people all over the world. So as much as we have to go through this tough time right now for my business, it's the most important time at the same time. And I draw a lot of inspiration from the Black Lives Matters movement. Uh, and it's a, it's a conversation that is long overdue to create a fair, just society. You know, in urban America, COVID will stay. There's two viruses going on in America right now. There is the virus of COVID that we will actually solve in a year or so, right? But the virus of racism has been with us for too long. I know we can do better as a nation, as people. I also want to make sure people know, but before we go, you say in this article that, that I quoted from er- earlier that you were able to uh, rehire employees at all of your restaurants and that yeah. at the restaurant in Newark, you pay $20 an hour. That's almost double the minimum wage in New Jersey of 11 because we know essential workers deserve higher pay while putting their health on the line. When people wonder why black and brown people, why COVID stays longer, well, you know, most of our jobs in African-American and, and brown communities, we don't have jobs that we can do from home. So these chefs and, and the people in the restaurant community are actually first responders. So I felt it was our duty to pay more because they're actually providing for the family in the toughest time. And, um, you know, it's very important to acknowledge, like America was kept together over the last three months by immigrants, by healthcare workers, by chefs, the people that deliver your food from the deli. And a lot of them are on minimum wage. We can't do that. We have a healthcare issue that we got to figure out. And we have, um, you know, we can't ask people to work on minimum wage and then save the country at the same time. It's not fair. I so much appreciate this conversation. I hope that one day soon we're sitting at one of those tables behind you and we're sharing a meal and we're toasting to the fact that restaurants are back. Thank you so much for having me. All best to you. You take care. All right. That's Marcus Samuelson joining us now. There's a lot more ahead on this CNBC special report. Once again, we've risen high above. This is what's known as Black Wall Street, a Tulsa business district home to scores of black owned businesses. They've just had to survive the pandemic and protests. But the community there survived something much worse. The story that'll make you stop in your tracks two minutes away. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. 
when the truth is... I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say... Hang it in there. Because... If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Earning your degree online doesn't mean you have to go about it alone. At Capella University, we're here to support you when you're ready. From enrollment counselors who get to know you and your goals, to academic coaches who can help you form a plan to stay on track. We care about your success and are dedicated to helping you pursue your goals. Going back to school is a big step, but having support at every step of your academic journey can make a big difference. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. creative ideas to come together, just as they did in rebuilding Black Wall Street. While Main Street is in crisis, it's nothing compared to what this business district has already seen. This CNBC special report continues. Once again, here's Scott Wapner. 99 years ago, almost to the day, a successful corner of early African-American entrepreneurship was burned to the ground in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Some estimates say 300 black people were killed in an area that was known then and now as Black Wall Street. Thousands of others were arrested. We went back to Tulsa's Black Wall Street to see how today's entrepreneurs were faring through the pandemic. Here's Andrea Day tonight with their story and our history. Main Street in crisis. Tulsa is a resilient place. It is a community that has overcome a lot. There has been lots of challenges, and it's oftentimes felt like people have tried to get rid of us, but you just keep on pushing forward. We came from the ashes after the massacre, after they burned down our community, and once again, we've risen high above. They are the new entrepreneurs of Black Wall Street, an area in Tulsa now battling COVID-19 and living through a historic revolution. Here I am at the start of this pandemic with absolutely no model for some online component. Rico Wright owns the Black Wall Street Art Gallery, and the struggle is real. And day after day, I'm just losing money. So I'm having to release uh, employees. I've got bills piling up. And I realized this is because we weren't being creative. We launched a new clothing line as a result of it. I went straight to my webmaster and said, hey, we need to revamp the website for the gallery. It was mind-blowing to see the revenue coming in because when you're in devastation, you know, you're sort of down and out. I mean, I was already consumed by COVID. That's enough on its own. And then it was quantified by, you know, the racial tensions. And I thought to myself, okay, now we're bringing traffic here, which means it increases the likelihood of something dramatic happening that's reminiscent of the massacre. But protesters brought new hope. Oh, my goodness. The support has been astronomical, particularly white people who want to become allies. They're asking, what can I do to help? They're wanting to spend money with Black-owned businesses. They bought everything. Right next door, a high-end sneaker shop also struggling with the pandemic. 
I think the harder hit people are financially, the less viable it is for them to invest in sneakers. Before the pandemic, we were really focused on getting people into our store. And suddenly, online sales and Instagram became a lifeline. We started something called Sneakerheads of Tulsa, where we would feature local sneakerheads. It was just an invitation to continue to engage with us. One of the lessons that we've taken from this time, the pandemic, the racial tension, the different things that have been thrown at us is that we need to be vigilant and we need to adapt. There's no way that I could have ever predicted anything like this. I literally can't even imagine what happens next. There are people on both sides that I feel a great responsibility to, people who don't believe that, you know, Black entrepreneurship can be successful. There are people who you know, are really banking on it. You know, they really look to us, especially here on Black Wall Street, to be leaders in this. Down the street, a family-owned restaurant also working to stay afloat. I grew up in the restaurant. I've been cooking since I was about eight years old. The restaurant first opened here on Black Wall Street by her grandmother in 1974. She was confident enough to start something, to stick with it, and keep on pushing for it despite whatever was thrown her way. When the pandemic first hit, it was very, very scary. Most of our business is from dining customers. But then the demonstrations brought in new sales. I did not expect for just so so much business to where you can almost not even like keep up or take a breath. I did not expect it. Our revenue has doubled, which is a tremendous blessing. We've already had the path laid from the past. So we know exactly what we need to do. We put our nose to the grind. We think of creative ideas to come together, just as they did in rebuilding Black Wall Street. I want people, when they come to this city, to see that this is not just a place where Black people lost all their businesses. This is a place where you can see the resilience among the people. You can see that new businesses are emerging in the ashes of the old. That was Andrea Day reporting. And remarkably, just last year, 98 years after the attacks in Tulsa, it finally became an official part of the Oklahoma public school curriculum. There's more ahead on this CNBC special report. Las Vegas and other American tourist spots are opening their doors. We'll find out what frequent flyers are seeing and what you should expect. Before the break, our world on day 164 of the coronavirus crisis. Welcome back. Last week, we introduced you to a couple that was among the first to check back into Las Vegas once it reopened. Travel bloggers Tanya and Dave Vernelli from Turn It Up World are back tonight to tell us about their trip and what's next. It's nice to see you guys again. Tanya, I, I know what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, but that's not going to work tonight. I want to know. <laughs> how was it? What happened? What did you do? What did you see? Well, I think that formula, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. It was probably before cell phones were invented. So, <laughs> but um, it was it was actually a very interesting time. You know, we were there for about a week for this reopening, and um, a couple things we did notice: um, the energy was definitely high and intense, and 
folks were pretty excited to, you know, get back to see the swing of things. Um, but yeah, it was, it was exciting. It was fun. Um, and I would say the only concern we've probably had was the uh, amount of mask wearing. It's probably about 30 percent uh, in our opinion that we're wearing masks versus not wearing masks. Dave, did it feel like Vegas? And the issue of the masks is a good one. And one I was going to ask you about the fact that there's no requirement to wear these masks in the casinos. No, no, it's interesting. And it did, I mean, it did feel like Vegas. Certainly, you know, you're starting from, you know, a reopening where it's not going to be packed right at the beginning, right? You know, except for that opening night, we were there actually for the opening uh, down on Fremont Street at one of the casinos. And it was really packed there at 12.01 a.m. on uh, early Thursday morning. Uh, but at other casinos that opened up the next day, it was definitely, definitely much, much uh, quieter, not, not nearly as busy. But I thought, in general, the casinos did a really good job. Yeah. And, you know, while we would prefer more folks to wear masks, we understand that it's not required. And we certainly do what we can, you know, to keep ourselves protected and also protect others as well by wearing our masks. Right. Restaurants are obviously a big deal there. What was it like having a meal? Um, I'm assuming you, you ate inside. What was the process like? I think we're trying to figure out what this new normal is going to feel like. Of course. Now, while there are a lot of restaurants that were still closed, you know, I'm going to use the win as an example. They opened up a lot of their restaurants. Um, the seating, the spacing was phenomenal. They definitely took liberty of making sure the seating um, was, was spaced apart. All the employees were required. They're required yes. to wear masks. So every one of them had masks. Um, and it was great because the menus, um, you didn't touch a menu. Most of the um, restaurants we went to, the menu was done by a QR code that you hold your phone up right. and then you pop up on your phone and you order. So there's no touchy, no feelsies. Uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so it's pretty great. You guys are back home now, right? In, in Austin. Uh, where's next? Where are you going to go next, Dave? Uh, well, the next uh, big trip for us is actually Iceland. We're going there for the um, really kind of the reopening of the country, right? And they're opening up for tourists this summer. Uh, actually giving, as what we've read, they're actually giving tests to folks that come in uh, from outside. And then we actually plan to try out uh, camper vanning uh, for about 10 days across Iceland. should be a lot of fun. So yeah, looking forward to it. Exactly. That's something that we've been venturing. Obviously, with this situation going on with the coronavirus, traveling to other countries could be pretty tough where the requirements could be 14 days. And that's pretty much the trip in itself. So we've been experimenting with camper vanning. We started domestically here in the U.S., which we found some excitement. And we have a really cool trip planned for Iceland camper vanning. So if, if it all works out well, we just may be purchasing one. <laughs> OK, we're going to be relying on you, uh, our eyes and ears uh, around the world on what the new normal is going to be like. Tanya and Dave, it's good to see you again. You guys take care. Great, Great to see you. Thank you. Thanks, right, we'll, Scott. We'll talk to you Good again night. soon. Tonight's headlines and recognizing America's restaurants still cooking through the crisis. That's next. It is time now for our nightly shout out to those restaurants operating in the face of crisis. Tonight, we salute Parks Barbecue in Los Angeles, Sweet Potato Sensations in Detroit, Jaden's Diner in St. Louis, The Donut in Centennial, Colorado, and Triple J's Pizza down in Atlanta. You can tweet me at Scott Wapner, CNBC. Use the hashtag thanks for the grub. Send the name and town of your favorite restaurant a picture as well. We'll do our best to get it on TV. Tonight's headlines on day 164 of the crisis. United becoming the first major U.S. carrier to require passengers to answer health questions. The Federal Reserve says it has no plans to raise interest rates through 2022 
and is ready to provide more support for the economy. The Dow falls more than 280 points, but the Nasdaq closes above 10,000 for the first time ever. A quick look at futures for you tonight. Looks like we will continue that slide tomorrow, though it is early. All three of the major averages, the futures there in the red. For all of us at CNBC, I'm Scott Wapner. Please be well. I'll see you on the half tomorrow at noon. Shark Tank is next. Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career, so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu.